Hello and welcome to our podcast, Shut the Fuck Up, We Are Not Done Talking Yet, with Sharla Gabert and Danielle Warriman. I'm Sharla. And I'm Danielle. In our podcast, we discuss current events, popular culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. We are smart, funny, and occasionally profane. We hope you enjoy our podcast and thanks for listening. Welcome to today's podcast, where we have a special guest, Julie Barton, who is not only our writing teacher, that she teaches a program called Unleashed in, at her very own dining table, but she also wrote a fantastic book called Dog Medicine that we both read and we really loved. Welcome, Hi. Julie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for entertaining us at your wonderful dining room table. <laughs> We're really excited to have you on the show. I love having you guys here in my class and now. It's good. Yeah, we've had a fantastic class um, called Unleashed, and it's been a fantastic experience. We're just finishing up today, but we're going to start again in the fall. Indeed. Yeah, it's good. And you guys, uh, the class is good for me, too. That's one of the things I've learned as a teacher. Teaching is actually a really good way to just keep me keep me going. Mm-hmm. How many years have you been doing this class in your house? I think maybe three years, but I've been a student of this style of writing for 10 years. So, yeah. Would you want to tell our listeners how it works yeah, or what the style yeah. is? So Unleashed is based on um, something called wild writing that my teacher, Lori, Lori Wagner, um invented really I think she invented it although maybe she got it from somebody else but it's essentially um kind of like free writing morning pages that kind of concept where I read a poem as a prompt and then people take a line from the poem or I suggest a line from the poem and you have to write by hand um on paper I don't unless somebody really needed to, I would, I would say, don't bring a computer really only write by hand because it slows down. You can't write as fast as your brain goes. And so it slows down things. So it forces you to really be selective in what you're writing. And then just ask people to write for 15 minutes and write as poorly as possible, which I think at this stage in our lives gives us permission to really let go because we're all holding on so tight, you know, and um, it gives us permission just to be like, all right, what is here? That's here. Okay, I guess I'll write that. And who knows where that's going? And then you can go off. And in that process where the the subconscious is sort of able to come through a little bit and we're not trying to control what we're creating as much. And it's hard. It's a practice like any other practice. Um, and it's just really good to do at least once a week. Well, it's a very meditative it's sort of exploratory writing mm -hmm. even though you know you're going to read out loud at the end and of course when we read out loud we're just sharing what we wrote yeah like we're not critiquing ago. yes that's right there's no yeah. comment other than beautiful well done thank you yeah I forgot to say that that that's what we do we write on the spot and we read it on the spot and we don't comment about it and we don't ask each other about it so that you can say things that you might actually not otherwise say, because 
you know, the worst thing is if you write something that you're actually feeling really vulnerable about, vulnerable about, or, and somebody goes, Oh my God, that sounds so terrible. Or are you okay? And you know, that's not necessarily where you may, you may, but you may not want to, to go there. And so I've just found that it's a really good way to, to get that on the page and get that out in the open. It doesn't feel so big anymore. And then also I think for other people around the table to go like, okay, life is hard for everybody. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's a really great realization that makes you feel less lonely. You realize we're all in this together. Yes. We all have issues and problems. It's, I mean, I find it really inspiring to hear other women's thoughts and writings and lives. Yeah. People are very generous and sharing what is on their minds. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the a theme goes through all of our writing at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So we're all buzzing about uh, the same thing. So we all write about dogs or we all write about breakfast. Yeah. Or, and then it all comes up. It's, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And it's just a, I think too, one of the things I've learned is sometimes I'll be writing something. I'm like, why did I decide to write about this? And then I'll realize based on something someone else said that actually like whatever came through me wasn't for me. It was for somebody else at the table who maybe needed to hear it that day. Uh, yes. You know, and there's just some sort of beauty in that and just the magic of it. It's really cool. There's something also very kind of liberating about starting from a poem and a line from a mm -hmm. poem, mm -hmm. even though we're writing essentially prose. Yeah. I think that often it just sort of unlocks whether they're metaphors or your subconscious or right. just gives you a certain kind of creative freedom. At least yeah. it does to me. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting too, is I think, you know, working from poems, it's a really specific kind of poem because I get a lot of, I have signed up for a lot of, po you know, poetry, like emails and stuff. And, you know, they'll send like some words worth and st I'm like, nope, <laughs> that's not the kind of, it's this really sort of free flowing, modern prose narrative poetry that is really what we're looking for you know we're and, and often I just need to find like a jump off line that is like okay we could jump off of that or that and sometimes I don't succeed but I feel like most of the time I mean this stack there the stack behind me the a two inch thick stack of probably three inch thick stack of papers that I go through and um, try to find good poems for each day I've probably written from 700 poems in my day. So you've been doing this as your own practice, as your own writing practice, as yes. well as teaching it. I do. Yeah. Wednesdays I teach it here and Fridays I'm a student. And that is actually really interesting because I do find that I feel freer so far as a student. I still feel like I'm working on really feeling that same sense of like being held as a teacher you know, I think when you mm -hmm. teach something and you guys both probably have this experience where like you feel like a little bit more like you have to be the container instead of being contained. Um, and so, you know, I think that'll probably come over time because I watch my teacher um, really bring it. And so it's a, it's a good, it's a, she's a good teacher in that way. A good sort of like, you know, model for Yes. Say the thing you maybe are most ashamed of or most scared of or most worried about writing. Like, she'll say that thing. And then I'm like, not only do I not judge her, I admire her. And I'm like, wow, maybe I could do that. Yes. You know? 
all of us, but I admire them when people write, in a sense, cringeworthy things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I say, wow, good for, good for all of us. And it, I'm the better person for hearing it. Yeah. And when somebody starts to cry, you know, it's, we all have this, um, which happens probably most weeks. Yeah. Um, we all have this initial desire to be like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Da, 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 da. And, and this practice has taught me really to just honor those feelings and not try to rush in and do anything. Just let them take their time, have that emotion as big or, you know, explosive or little and weepy as it feels. It just feel it. And all of us being here and not trying to jump in is actually, I have found more profound than if somebody's like, well, it's okay. Or don't cry or, you know, or even just saying anything, you know, and I still am trying to work on that in my own, (laughs) in my own outside of writing life, Mm -hmm. just that sort of not panicking when somebody has big emotions and just being like, beautiful keep going yeah just be there for them yeah I mean I think we all feel very supported like it's a safe place to cry if you feel like crying yeah it's kind of challenging to have to read through (laughs) your tears it is it is um but I think you feel better after you've done that yeah I know I'm always surprised I write something and I don't even feel very emotional then I read it and waterworks so I think that that's that is actually really good because it tells me that I did strike something mm-hmm. um, by being forced to read it out loud mm-hmm. and not merely leave the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a yeah. good practice. It's a great practice. So we came upon it. We mm-hmm. met Julie at Esalen Writers Club Camp last summer. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of ran into each other and then managed to get on a list when Steve Almond, who's a teacher at the Writers Camp, was doing an event at your house and we came to it and then we found out that you give this class. So we were sort of lucky and circuitous Yeah, that's that, right. that we came that. upon this. Um, so it's been a part of my Wednesdays for this whole um, year, starting in September. That's right. Now it's writing Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's been great. So I guess we should also talk about your book and the, your theme um, well, why don't you start telling about the book and we'll ask you questions. Well, it's a memoir, which I never intended to be a memoirist. You know, I have an MFA in fiction writing. Um, I'm a bad fiction writer. <laughs> <laughs> but a very I have good a master's in it. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. I don't know why. I just wish I wish I could. Sometimes I think it'd be easier. But um, I did try to write this memoir as a novel first ah, okay. and wrote a novel called Dog Leg Women, which is very different than the memoir, but it has similar ideas in it. Um, sort of, you know, sort of escape, like running away from trouble and trying a new life. Um, so the book is, it's a memoir of my 22nd year. And it was a very tough year. It was a year when I was first diagnosed with major depression after really being depressed probably since I was 14, but not not understanding what it was um, until it really got bad. And then I was living in Manhattan then, and my mom came and got me, took me back to Ohio where I grew up. And it was there that I was diagnosed and 
they got me on medication and therapy. And that was where I was first sort of interest in or introduced to cognitive behavioral therapy. And, um, you know, they were trying to help and nothing was helping. And I was literally face down on the couch, like didn't want any stimulation. I got to a point where, um, like a breeze felt, it felt bad, like a breeze on my skin hurt. And it was just, I was in, it was torture. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the only thing that I could think of that might help, um, was when I was a kid growing up in this, you know, loving yet very troubled household. Um, I would take the dog to my room and the dog helped me feel safe. The dog helped me feel like I, I was loved by something. The dog helped me feel like maybe things were going to be okay. And just sort of the, the, the touch of the dog would calm me down. And so I said to my mom, I think I want to get a dog. And she said, okay, great. And my mother is a doer. She's not necessarily a, I'm going to tell you how I feel or explore how you feel, but if you want something done, she will do it. And that's how she tells you she loves you. So she got the newspaper out and she found litters and we went and looked and saw one litter and they were cute, but my dog wasn't there. And then we went to the next litter and he walked right up to me and sat down at my feet and kissed my nose. And I was like, that's it. This is him. And I took him home and um, immediately thought, Oh my God, what did I just do? Because I don't have a job. I'm 22. I'm living in my parents' house. <laughs> like this is not the smartest move I've ever made. But in that moment, I just put my hands on him and all of those anxieties, all they all just went like, Oh, who cares? It's going to be fine. You're going to be okay. And um, that was sort of the beginning of this healing path that he took me on, which, which, you know, I've, we really healed each other in many ways, um, but mostly he healed me in, in, in his, you know, obvious loyalty and his calmness. He was really a calm puppy, like strangely calm. We were like, is he okay? He was just like <laughs> chill. You know, he'd have those little zoomies now and then where he'd like run around the room and right. be crazy, but mostly he was just really, really like observant and he'd look around and, you know, take things in and he was very alert and um, a watcher. And so I spent a whole summer training him and that gave me purpose. Mm -hmm. And our connection became so profound based on one day when I was like starting to feel down again, because, you know, the, the trajectory, the trajectory from and out of and back into depression is never linear, right? It's always like, right. I feel better. I feel shitty. I feel better. Mm -hmm. I feel shitty. I feel, you know, um, and there was one day after a couple of weeks I've already gotten him where I was going back down and I thought I, you know, I had, um, been waking up early with him and going out with him and being outside. And that was also healing. But this one particular day, I don't know what had happened, but I just sat on the couch and just started crying and I had my head in my hands and I just was distraught and desperate. And he must've noticed he came over and he sat on my feet and he leaned against my shins. And then he looked up at me with like, did that help? Are, are you better? Do you, do you need anything? And, and I, in that moment thought, okay, I have a choice. I can decide this was like 
random and just happened to be that he came over at that time, or I can decide that he noticed and that he cared and that he loves me. And so I decided to believe the second thing, which was probably the second hopeful thing I did was I believed that he sensed how I was doing and cared. And, um, and he did that his whole life. He really truly did for me and other people. He was like this incredible being who, um, just was walking love. And I've never had a dog like him since I have, Mm -hmm. you know, I have dogs now and they're, they're great. They're fine. They're right here, but (laughs) they're not him. You know, they're just not. And I, I was disappointed to find out that he was as rare as he was. And he was a golden retriever, right? Who happened to be the most darling dogs, but he was special even for golden retrievers, what you're saying. Yeah. And he was very red. Everybody thought he was an Irish setter because he was very red and kind of slender. Um, But yeah, he was, he was the bomb. Yeah. I know when you just, you made the decision to ask for a dog. I thought that was, when I was reading your memoir, I thought that was a huge turning point. Mm-hmm. because you recognize there was possibly some way yeah. to rescue yourself. Yeah. yeah. You were kind of just reaching for the one thing that you could think of. Yeah. And, and it wasn't going to be a person because I didn't trust mm-hmm. people. I didn't trust that I wasn't going to be betrayed or hurt by people or, or even like, you know, as a very sensitive person, like, just the slightest little thing could just throw me right off the edge, you know, the slightest little like look or something. And, and I knew that that was always going to be a minefield for me. And so having the dog, like I, I never worried the dog was like, I don't like you or, Oh, you're annoying. Or you, you know, none of that. I just, I, I really desperately needed it. Well, I've, I've been depressed at various points in my life and, one thing I remember is that it would have required superhuman strength to have a relationship with a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You feel like you cannot even make small talk. You cannot really be reciprocal in a relationship. But I could see with a dog, it's unconditional love from the dog. And they don't have their own agenda. They're just there for you. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they too, like in that, if there were five of us in the room, he and I were most, bond, most bonded. So he'd pick me. <laughs> I needed to be picked, you know, yeah. I needed mm-hmm. that. I needed to feel unconditionally loved truly. And, and, and then, the, and then on top of that, beyond that, there really did feel like, and there still feels like this deeply sort of spiritual connection with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, believe that he sent me my dog that's sitting on my lap right now. Um, and I knew that it, I knew she was coming. She didn't come the way I thought she would. And she most certainly doesn't look the way I thought she would. <laughs> <laughs> She's a funny looking little thing, but I know he sent her to me. So To take his place. Well, not even to take his place, but just because I needed something I needed, I needed something and I knew I needed, I needed, a dog that was going to want to be with me and by me and on me all the time, which this, my other dog is very like, if you try to snuggle with him, he's like, uh, Ooh, get off, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which actually is kind of how bunker was too. He didn't, he wasn't a snuggler. He was a leaner. 
I'm leaner. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, if there is, the older I get, the more spiritually woo-woo I get. And that's what the next book is on is all the spiritual crazy woo-woo things in it. And, um, you know, I asked for something and, and it came and the sign, I asked for signs and signs came and things broke in half that shouldn't have broken in half. And I don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm. but I, I, he was sort of my first uh, foray into believing that like there's a higher power or spirit or guardian or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so your next book is also autobiographical. It's also yeah. a memoir. So more mm-hmm. stories about you and relating to yeah. her. And- yeah. 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 That's probably why Pam Houston called her second book a little more about me or <laughs> third book. Yes. It's like, <laughs> yes. A little more about me. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can write fiction and um, memoir just feels more natural to me at this point. And the practice we do really is, you know, mm-hmm. we're writing little mini memoir moments. Um, yeah. So it is, it's, it's different. It's very different. It's much less childhood oriented and like going mm-hmm. back into you know, all that painful territory. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, of, I it's been a while since I read Dog Medicine, but I was thinking about how one thing from your childhood that was so painful was, I don't know what you call it, sibling abuse, um, which was something that I thought was unique mm-hmm. in your book. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have really bad childhoods with really terrible parents, but I hadn't really come across a memoir where someone had suffered so much abuse, physical and emotional abuse from a sibling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, educated, have you guys read educated Tara Westover's book? She has some siblings. She also has terrible parents, but um, sibling abuse, big time in there. Um, So I feel like people are starting to talk about it more. And, and I'll tell you that, you know, for most of my, probably until I was 30, I was in complete denial that, that I had experienced that. I just, Mm -hmm. I had to have at least 10 therapists say that what you experienced was Mm non-normal. What you experienced was abuse. And I would just, the first time that happened, I was like, therapists are so wussy, <laughs> like, yes, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like I, that wasn't really that bad. And then, you know, when I really started to go back and try to write it or feel it or really remember, it was really, really challenging. And I was like, okay, okay. Maybe they're right. Maybe this there's something very traumatic. Here. Maybe there's something here. And then, you know, really starting to look back at the dynamic in my family, you know, I mean, every family has its own little funky things. And, and mine was, you know, for me ended up being pretty toxic, you know, even though uh, my parents really meant well and really wanted to do well by me and my brother, Mm -hmm. they, you know, my, my mom enabled my dad's workaholism and, allowed his anger and he was extraordinarily angry and aggressive. And then my brother became aggressive. And then here I am, I'm born this like little, you know, writer who talks to trees, who loves animals, who, you know, 
is very, very sensitive. And it was just, I, I often would say it was like the perfect storm of me crumbling under that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to having kids myself now to remember some of the stuff that happened and think like, wow, why did somebody not do anything? Mm-hmm. Why was nobody saying like, this is not okay. Um, yeah. Well, your uh, yes. readers were saying that too. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was very well. Right. And we were, you know, concerned. There was a scene where your father was at work. Your mother was outside working mm-hmm. and correct me if I've misremembered this. Your brother got mad at you and chased you into the bedroom. You closed the door, you locked the door, and he broke the door down Mm -hmm. and attacked you. Yeah. And when your mother came in from outside, you told her what happened. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, Julie, just try to stay away from him. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. I, when I read that, Mm -hmm. I was just astonished that... It was like your parents recognized what was happening, but not the level to which it was happening, let's say, Mm -hmm. or the extremity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seemed to me that that was also part of the trauma, is that Mm -hmm. not only did you have to endure this sibling abuse, but your parents' lack of action was itself another type of abuse or betrayal. It's very confusing. It's Mm -hmm. very confusing. It feels like you... You know, my parents were there and lovely in so many ways and then completely abandoned me in Mm -hmm. other ways, even though Mm -hmm. they were right there. And yes, my needs were met in most ways, but they just did not know how to handle this at all and thought it was just sibling rivalry. Um, Even though your brother was bigger and mm -hmm. older Mm -hmm. and physically stronger mm-hmm. and they didn't know how to deal with his anger either I mean mm-hmm. he was getting into fights and you know he was really struggling and he was probably the one who needed the most tending to you mm-hmm. know um so that he wouldn't do what he was doing to me I mean I needed tending to as well but that wasn't really my parents strength you know, mm-hmm. and, and my dad missed a lot of it and didn't know. And, you know, the, there's the scene where my brother pushes me and I'm knocked unconscious oh, on the floor and my right. dad is home. Yeah. Um, he was in the office and he came and he runs down and, you know, I wake up to my dad standing over me screaming. And, um, you know, in that instance, I remember so clearly being so grateful that he saw this. And that when he took me in the back of the car to the emergency room, I was so happy mm-hmm. because I was like, okay, now this is, then now he sees how bad it is. Now he sees, like, cause my dad was like my ally, my guy, and he's going to do something. And this is going to, this is like, this is it. And then after, and then I remember the nurses and how they were so like taking care of me and I just wanted to be taken care of. And, um, and then I started worrying like, uh Oh, when we get home, is he going to get, is my brother going to get in trouble? And is then he going to retaliate? And then, you know, and 
it just ended up kind of fizzling out. I mean, I think he got in trouble, but it was definitely not like my parents were, you know, they weren't like something needs to change. It was just like, that was an unfortunate accident. And um, I have some photos that my mom wrote on the back to, she'd sent them to my aunt and my grandmother. They, the old Instagrams, they'd print out the photo and then mail it to each other and write comments on the back. (laughs) Right. And mail it around to all the different Uh people. We all live far away. And she called it an accident. She mm-hmm. said, um, and she had a picture of me with the stitches. And so kind of like it was roughhousing that got out of control. Right. right. And the, and that everything's okay. She she cared very and still cares very much that everybody thinks that everything's okay. Right. Which was isolating for me as a kid because I was like, why am I the only one who feels like everything is not okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Julie and Charlotte, let's take a break mm-hmm. and come back in a moment. All right, we're back. And um, on our break, I asked Julie what we should talk about. And we said, perhaps just talk about depression. I am no stranger to depression. It's been plaguing me uh, my life and sort of most recently in the last few years. That's part of what drew me to your book, because mm-hmm. I find it so um, refreshing when people just talk about the D word, you yeah. know, because now it's become more accepted that people suffer from clinical depression unless that we're lazy and we need to pull up our bootstraps. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. And get on with it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when I first started writing, I thought a couple things and two of the big ones were. I can't write about how obsessed I was with my dog because that sounds crazy. And I also can't tell the world that I was diagnosed with a mental illness at age 22 because it was my, it was my deepest source of shame for a long time. In fact, I didn't even tell, I think I'd say this in the book. I didn't tell my husband or my new friends. I didn't want anybody Mm -hmm. to know that about me because it felt, you know, that label felt massive and, um, and I really did, you know, take it on as like, okay, this is, this defines me. Um, and I think I'm still trying to un, undo that, but I do, you know, I think maybe a lot of people listening will relate to this. Like when you're first diagnosed, it's almost a relief. Cause you're like, oh my God, thank God. There's a reason. And there's, there's some, a name there's for a this name mm-hmm. and there's people that work on it and there's maybe ways out of it. And it's not, I'm not the only one. I mean, I remember thinking, first of all, Oh my God, I'm crazy because it was 96 when I was diagnosed and I'd never heard of anybody being diagnosed with anything like this. Um, and I thought I'm crazy, but then I also thought, okay, so there's other people in the world who have felt this way. Cause I really felt that alone with it, you know? Very alone. Yeah. It's in it. You, it, as a, typically we isolate those of us who get depressed. So then we just feel alone and we feel like no one else could possibly feel this bad. It's all on us alone. Yeah. And we don't want to bother anybody with it. Right. Right. Because it's so awful. Yeah. How could anybody stand to be near me? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, also I think people don't talk about it enough. It's obvious. It's extremely common. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Yeah. And yet people do hide the fact that they have been depressed, that they take Prozac. I've been taking Prozac since 
1988. Oh, wow. And I have no intention of stopping taking Prozac. I really don't care if I'm a walking guinea pig for (laughs) Prozac because Prozac saved my life. Mm. And I was just really grateful that there was something that I could take. I think most people who have never been depressed don't understand that it is a physical as well as emotional and mental illness, Mm -hmm. that you have physical symptoms of being exhausted, lethargy, not sleeping. And once it takes over, you can feel it in your body. Mm -hmm. That is, it's no longer just, I'm in a bad mood. I feel blue. I feel down. It kind of takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And when there, when you do discover that there's a pharmaceutical solution that can get you out of the deep hole that you have fallen into, you just feel really grateful yeah. and happy that there is something. It feels like a miracle. It's true. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get very annoyed by people who haven't experienced it who judge people who are depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that still happens, although it is becoming more commonplace that people say, I'm depressed or I have anxiety, and it's um, a little more accepted. Yeah, when I had my first depression when I was probably younger, but when I was 19, or the type of, work of depression where I couldn't get out of bed anymore. And I did see a psychiatrist, but that was the old school times so in like 1984, where they had the tricyclic yes. antidepressants so before Prozac. And one of them made me have a grand mal seizure. Oh, my God. And one of them was making me throw up. So I never tried any again. So flash forward decades, and I'm so tragically depressed a couple years ago. And I'm like, I'm not trying any of those antidepressants because I'm so sensitive. Well, I tried one. It's like two weeks later, I felt fine. Mm. So it's the, it's a new world. There's There are better treatments now. Although I feel like now I'm going through many antidepressants that say so they work and then they don't work. And yeah. That's been really Yeah, that's really got to be frustrating. I've been there. Well, and I, I've tried to go off many times because I, for the, at first I'd be like, I feel fine. I don't need this anymore. Yes. I feel fine. I'm fine. And then I go off of it and you know, a month later I'm on the floor and I'm like, Oh, okay. Maybe I don't feel fine. And I did that enough mm-hmm. times. And then I, one time I went back on and it wasn't working and I had to switch medications and I was so scared mm-hmm. that I was like, I am never doing that again, but I probably did it five or six times. And, um, and then I've had to, you know, up my medication and then try to lower it. And, you know, but I've never, I'm never, I'm the same. I'm never going to go off of it. My own doctor, my regular doctor, always wants me to taper off Prozac. And I think it's because he thinks incorrectly that Prozac is somehow dampening my emotions or somehow it's keeping me from experiencing like the full range of human emotions or something. How would he know that? I don't know. I mean, he's an internal medicine doc. And so I just ignore him because, Mm -hmm. as I said, I have no intention of of getting off of Prozac. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But I think sometimes people do feel like they should get off of it Mm -hmm. because it's a crutch. They have side effects. They have, you know, there's things that are not so great about them. And, and, you know, that is true. So that would be nice if 
we didn't all have to be on them. Like apparently millions and upon millions of Americans mm -hmm. who take stuff. Um, however, if it is, you know, saving your life, mm -hmm. uh, sign me up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep taking it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's true. They do. It does have a side effect of it. It does dampen your libido. Yeah. That sucks. Got that. Yeah. But well, so does menopause. So, you know, <laughs> there we go. You know, it's, these things happen. It's inevitable. But I will also say when you're depressed, you don't feel like having sex either. So, right? Definitely. I mean, that's kind of like the last thing you want to do when you're deeply depressed. So, yeah. And I always, you know, for me, you know, it sounds kind of, I don't know, cliche, but when I start having suicidal thoughts, it, I don't know about you guys. I mean, this is just one of the markers where I'm like, uh-oh. Mm -hmm. You know, I start to, I'm not going to actually, I, I, I don't think I'm actually going to do anything. And I, I, mm -hmm. I know enough now to know like, okay, alarm bells go off. But I'll start to think about ways I could do it and watch things about suicide on YouTube or, you know, I'll start to think about, could I just drive to the Gold Gate Bridge or, you know, that kind of thing. And then I'm like, okay, time to get some help, time to call in the troops. And, you know, I, I don't like, I, I've told people that, you know, when I, when I'm really struggling, I'll say to my husband, I'm really struggling and I need, I need help. And, and I think the way that I've painted it in the past has made it sound like my husband's like, okay, I know exactly what to do and exactly how to help you and exactly what to say. And that's not at all true. He's like, bah, da, bah, da, bah. <laughs> what, do I, do I leave you here? Do I go? Do you want me to be near? He, he often thinks I want him to go away. Mm -hmm. And it's very confusing because I do. And I mm -hmm. will tell him that, but I really don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really need him to stay and be with me and mm. just, you know, right. and, and I mean, I just had a, this last spring, I had this crazy episode of just utter despair that was so baffling and it was really somatic. It was body-based, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I don't, I hadn't had that before and, you know, it's tiring. <laughs> that is, that is true. I think that sense of being exhausted and making superhuman effort to get through the day of brushing your teeth, washing your face, mm -hmm. These things all just seem like little mini achievements when you're suffering from depression. Yeah. Um, and But that's a good question. I was just thinking about how husbands or spouses react. I think it's difficult for them. They don't really know what to do yeah. Yeah. or how to help you. Yeah. yeah. I also have been there with the, the suicidal thoughts. Or Mine is less planning for it and more like this desire to go to sleep and never wake up yeah mm -hmm. and then also if there could be some way not to hurt my family I'm like okay so my family will not be <laughs> affected by this but I'm just going to go to sleep and never wake up so I never have to be in this pain body like mm -hmm. that's what Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. in the pain body anymore um and then this is another way I'm dealing with it that the depression is outside of me, that I am a human being, I'm Danielle, and the depression is something else. Mm -hmm. And right now it's it's affecting me, but it's going to go away. And one of my friends, my psych nurse friends, when I told her I was depressed a few months ago, she said, Danielle, that's bullshit. 
and it's temporary. But what she meant was not that it, I was lying to her or that depression's not real. She's just like, it's such bullshit. How much longer, right? Those of us affected by yes. depression. And she was yes. right. It is temporary. There's always a way out. Well, yeah, it's good to hear you are not your depression. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think anytime you have an illness that seems overwhelming and forms your identity, it's good to have someone tell you you're not your illness. Right. And you're not your depression. Right. Absolutely. Because you do feel, I, I know I felt that way. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I am a depressed person. And, and I, when I think about that, when I think about a depressed person, it's something I don't like. And then when I went to grad school, I met my, my first, my first writing teacher was this guy named Tim Parrish. He was the funniest, most lively, amazing, energetic, amazing teacher, tough teacher, but also really good, smart. And then come to find out he suffers massively from depression. And I was like, okay. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it was revolutionary that he shared that with all I think he shared Mm -hmm. it with the whole class for me it was like oh my god okay cool okay I like him he's energetic he's funny he's interesting and he suffers it's not just that we're all like Eeyore over here in the corner you know well (laughs) even though I may be sometimes no that's (laughs) a really good point highly functioning depressives yeah are very um mysterious to people because they're like you I know. I remember telling some a coworker once that I was depressed and I was actually in a period of depression. Mm-hmm. And I told my boss and I told my coworkers because I felt like I could hardly do my work. Yeah. That I wanted them to understand that I was impaired. And one of them just said, "Oh, that can't be you." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not believing what I told her. Yeah. Because from her point of view, I looked like I looked fine. You look fine. Mm. Yeah. I think that's so that was I think for parents that's often the case. You know parents can see their kids smiling and laughing and I think, okay, they're fine. And it's not always true. Yes. And I think that is actually probably a good thing for people to know who don't have depression. Um that it can manifest in people in different ways and that you shouldn't assume that just because somebody isn't confined to bed and can't lift their head off the pillow doesn't mean they're not depressed. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's never been my, that's not true. That summer I was home. I did have some times where I couldn't get up, but um, mine isn't usually that way. I can usually get up and go, but I'm miserable while you're doing it. (laughs) First thing in the morning, like that, that for me that I don't know about you guys, but, in that first moment of waking, yes, yes, that I is do. A very telling moment. You know how how are we in that moment? And a lot of times, my return to consciousness is not the most pleasant experience. You know, I still wake up feeling anxious, mm-hmm. a sense of dread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then coffee. Right. Yeah. That's the one thing to look forward to. <laughs> like, thank God for coffee. Without a coffee, I would be a pessimist, but I am an optimist because I have coffee in my life. But yeah, I and I, I recognize that I'm like, this really reminds me of the times I've been depressed. Mm-hmm. But then I get up, I start moving, I drink coffee and I feel fine. But that sense of heaviness, first thing when you do. I wonder if 
there's some brain chemicals involved in that, you know, and mm-hmm. that sort of like everything's slowing down and the engine is revving, but it's not started and we're awake, but we're not. I mean, I wonder what that is because I, you know, I often wake up and I just think, oh, crap, not again. Like morning, oh, God, another day. And then, right. I, and then I do an inventory of my day. What do I have? And my friend who's a coach told me to you know, wake up and have that experience, but then always not reach for my phone, which is what I do 99% of the time. She said, leave your phone in a different room, get up in the morning, put your hands on your chest and say, hi, friend, Mm -hmm. to remind yourself that you are, you are in this (laughs) with yourself. Yes. (laughs) That's a really good way to start. Yeah. But I do, I do think that depression is rampant right now because we're valuing the wrong things and we're not, we're not, I I don't think we were all meant to live the way we live Mm. in our separate little houses Mm -hmm. where we don't see each other unless we plan it. And I feel like village life is how we manage to stay happy and connected. And I resist the idea because I'm like, I would never want to be like constantly with people. So I would maybe go on hikes and things, but I do feel like there is something about the way we live that's really isolating. I think there are many things about the way that we live in modern life that are depression inducing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Driving alone in a car. The and solitariness, mm-hmm. the focus on activity and tasks. Productivity and mm-hmm. success and how we define that. And But there's yeah. a lot of isolation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And driving around in our cars. Mm-hmm. And, and watching TV that's, everybody's watching a different channel. Yeah. <laughs> We're all kind yeah, of in our own little cable. TV was really bad for a couple years. And now we have Netflix and Amazon Prime. There's so much TV to watch. And screens. I mean, yeah. we, you know, for right. Mother's Day this year, I asked my family to put down their screens. And it was like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it was, I, I said, I just want everyone to notice how you feel before you do this put down your screens and we watched this thing about how screens affect family. And, and then I said, at the end of the afternoon, we went for a walk, we played cards, we laughed, we talked. And I said, now, how do you feel? And everybody felt better. Everybody felt happier. And so, you know, just this whole, even going on a train and every single person is looking down at the screen or they're walking along the sidewalk, looking at the screen. And I feel like we need like a technology revolution where we, decide we're going to do it differently because we're all addicted (laughs) you know yes i am well it says something that people go on digital detox Mm -hmm. or they on vacation Mm -hmm. on vacation a lot of times i don't know we're busy we don't watch television yeah i check in for my email and then i'm done yeah and the it, part of the vacation is just a vacation from screens. But I do think, you know, for young kids and the levels of anxiety and depression that I see, you know, in my, my daughter's a freshman in high school, my older daughter, and um, like they have this big project that they have to do every fresh, all the freshmen have to write this big paper and more than half of her friends wanted to write about anxiety and depression because they're struggling with it so much because they're looking at their screens all the time. They're feeling left out of things. They're feeling like they're not perfect enough. They're Mm -hmm. feeling like they should be somewhere else. They're not actually even really present in their own lives. And so they're they're. It's just this, this 
sickness. And then they're also being pressured into thinking that their life is defined by where they go to college and what grades they get. And it's just a recipe for sorrow. Yes. Yes. We had enough problems when we were teens, Mm -hmm. just living with, you know, the peer pressure and all that. And just use the phone, just Just the phone. I know. That was complicated enough. Like, did your phone ring because your friends want to see you? Right. It's like this whole other thing. It's this whole Instagram and, Snapchat. Snapchat and, and the and the amount of kids that are, you know, either bullying each other on Snapchat or sending inappropriate photos to each other on yes. Snapchat. It's it's crazy. Yes. Yeah, you mentioned that my my kids just the technology iPhones came out when my kids were whatever, twelve or fourteen or something like that. So they had them, but it wasn't even nearly to the extent. Right. All the apps weren't there yet. It was more like I'm just it was just a phone or meet me mm-hmm. at Safeway. Yeah. You know, now it's like a whole animal it's, of its own. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. But I do think that that and that lends itself to mental instability because you're really distracted mm-hmm. and constantly comparing yourself to everybody, even people that are posting things that aren't actually real or physically possible you know it's all computer generated waistlines yes yes well and I think adults are affected as well I mean they say that if you the more hours you spend on Facebook the more depressed you are because you are always comparing yourself and because people put their best foot forward on Facebook all these pictures that we all share of our fantastic meals and vacations and yeah, there's yeah. this sort of false self that you sort of present on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That, but I think that does leave people feeling more isolated because they're knowing they know they're just putting this sort of fake self out there. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to Facebook and looked at photos of like all my friends out, and I'm like, I guess I wasn't invited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yes. Are we really friends? I don't know. And so I had like a birthday trip a couple of years ago and I instructed everybody, do not post anything because I don't want someone to feel that way. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is alienating and ridiculous. And when I get really depressed, I can't go on Facebook because it makes me insane. Yeah. Like just even seeing anyone's posts is like disturbing to me. So I, I kind of don't look. And then everyone goes, oh, Danielle fell off the planet. I'm like, oh, I'll be back eventually. <laughs> I kind of want to fall off the planet. You know, I, I'm like toying with the idea of a flip phone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I do feel like I don't have enough discipline to really undo and I find myself doing like, you know, three hours of a day on my phone and then I'll be like, Oh my God. And I'll stop and it'll be like 45 minutes. And then it creeps back up to, you know, several hours. And I'm looking at some random ladies, Instagram feed from I know <laughs> their dogs, <laughs> just yeah, dogs and cats and stuff, which is probably actually good for our serotonin levels. That's true. When I look at cat photos. Actually makes me a little bit well, happier. Well, and you have, an, you have a similar relationship with cats that do yes. I do with dogs. Yes. I have a very, very loving relationship with cats. Like, I can't get enough of them, and they've been around my whole life. Yeah. Danielle and her daughter actually started a Facebook group called People Who Love Their Cats Too Much. Aww. The tagline is, if you get in trouble by the law or from a ther- by your therapist, this group is for <laughs> it's you. For you. <laughs> It's a way to share all of our cat videos and pictures with people who don't, 
who who want to be overwhelmed by cat pictures. Yeah, and yeah, videos. yeah, yeah. To keep it off the regular newsfeed. So what, if I'm feeling really crappy, since I'm a an administrator moderator of that group, I actually have to go on sometimes <laughs> and see if there needs to be a new member and um, let in. So then I go on it and try to avoid the rest of the Facebook stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but that is true. We are being alienated by new technology and our, something happened to ourselves and we're more depressed than we ever I suppose people were depressed decades ago and it just wasn't named yeah. right. Yeah. And they just didn't necessarily function as well. Or like those, they just stayed in their house for two years and someone would be like, oh, you know, so-and-so. They're recluse. Yeah, they're yeah. recluse. Yes, they had d- nicer names in the Victorian age yeah, for that. Yeah, Hysteria, you know? hysterical. That's and true. And then they'd take you in, you know, what they used to do for women who were hysterical. They removed their uterus. No, they would they would use a vibrator on them and oh. give them an orgasm. And then they'd be like, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> it's what? true. I believe you. Women who were like morose or experiencing a lot of sorrow, they would go to the doctor who had a literal wand vibrator, Uh would give them an orgasm, and they'd be like, oh, I feel great. You know, just about. I was going to listen to this and say, (laughs) I have a solution for you. Plus, my friend Julianne, the one I'm doing the Italy trip um, with next year, that's her solution for everything. I'm like, Oh man, I have jet lag. She's like, you need the big O. The like, big O. Oh, I have indigestion. You yeah. need the big O. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that method. Does Obamacare cover this? Like, <laughs> you're going in for depression, and they're like, you can do cognitive behavioral therapy. You can take serotonin. Or you can have a happy ending. Happy ending. You can just drive them to good vibrations or go online because if it's more discreet, just buy your, you know, buy a vibrator and take care of things. You know, this is uplifting. I I can feel my mood lifting Mm -hmm. right now because Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the options. Yeah. Oh, there are so many options. In fact, that's what my, my Friday class, we often discuss the best, our favorite vibrators. And it is so enlightening. And my, my teacher also has like pot you can use that will enhance your orgasm. And she like, everybody takes a picture of it. And so. Well, wow. For us, for ending our depression discussion on something really Yes. Upbeat. I'm going to put this on my to-do list. Only like near the top. There we go. <laughs> because sometimes boosting my libido just seems like another thing I have to do. We don't need to involve anybody else. No, in no. That's so true. No, we don't. We don't. Exactly. Just like have some batteries on hand. Exactly. I just want lifter. I want to add that we are we are recording this podcast with a <laughs> giant red vertical microphone that looks like a sex toy. It does. It really does. It does. So that should inspire us. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, Julie, you know what? We had even more stuff to talk to you about. So another time we'll just have Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. That was so the fun. Time flew by. Time flew by. And uh, we appreciate you. So your book is called Dog Medicine by Julie Hill Barton. And it's available everywhere the books are sold, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a website. Yes. It's by juliebarton.com. B-Y. Because juliebarton.com was taken. Okay, so okay, bye. And also B U Y by Julie Barton. No, no, yeah, no yeah. just B Y Julie Barton. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. We'll put your website in our uh, notes for this show. 
Great. And um, it was a d- distinct pleasure to have you on today. Thank and you've been. Me. Yes, thank you for I'm joining really us. But transparent, us. And that is really refreshing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's the way to be because we're all in this together. We are. That is a good thing to remember. Yes, we yeah. are. We are. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.